source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding eye. Thank you, sister. It's taken me too long years to teach Elizabeth this. <laughs> just amazing that she just decided to take that up a couple of years ago. We're getting to have the happiness of that. Blessings of that. Thank you. Um, we're going to read from uh, John, page 986. Um, actually, the, these passages that are listed, we're not going to read from all these passages today, just the first one, but they're listed there so that uh, you can compare several of the great passages that speak of the incarnation of Christ. Uh, and we are going to use a different one in the next uh, couple of weeks, including Christmas Eve, uh, drawing from these passages. Talking about the different ways that God unveils Himself in the incarnation. And, uh, there was This was an original title, but a new title that was that just didn't make it in the bulletin. I'll take uh, credit for that is uh, the unveiling of God in the Incarnation, which is going to be the theme of all these verses, uh, passages, the unveiling of God in the Incarnation. So with that in mind, let's read first uh, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll skip to verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And after talking about John some, it says in verse 14, And the Word... Remember, this is the Word that was with God, the Word that was God, the Word that created the whole world and everything in it. That Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I have said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Thus the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Lord, You have given this Word by Your Holy Spirit. May You give us that Spirit that we would be enlightened even as Lydia, for whom you opened up her heart that she might understand the things spoken by Paul. Lord, open up our heart by your Holy Spirit. 
open up our lives to this word. Lord, may He grow us in faith and devotion and joy and praise. Bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Back when Kay and I, uh, mainly Kay, but I was the helper, used to sell uh, Mexican Talavera pottery. I had left Kay at a Talavera factory store uh, to go with our translator partner to rustle up a trailer with which we were going to take the pottery back to the United States. Okay, So Kay was left in the office with the owner of that business, this lady who's owned the business, who also knew almost no English. And Kay told me later how frustrating it was uh, that she sat there for a whole hour with this woman and they couldn't communicate. They couldn't tell each other about, this is my child like, this is, this is how many children I have. They couldn't talk about their marriage. Uh, they couldn't talk about uh, anything personal, you know, how I feel about something, what my dreams are. They couldn't talk about their ailments, you know. They couldn't talk about politics. They couldn't talk about this, uh, the weather, you know. They, they couldn't talk about what they had for breakfast. Just sitting there, you know, <laughs> looking at each other. I mean, you could have picked up a, you know, a tape dispenser and said, tape dispenser, you know. And she could pick it up and say it in Spanish. Oh, that's going to really get some communication going there. Well, the problem, of course, was there, there's no common language, right? There, there was no medium of communication because they didn't have a common language. This passage is about God taking the medium of our own humanity to communicate His glory to us. That is an amazing thing. That God is using the language, in a sense, of our flesh to declare Himself to us. But it says here that He became flesh, and in the flesh dwelling among us, we saw His glory. Glorious of the only one from the Father. So, this title I've mentioned, the unveiling of God in the incarnation. If you're not familiar with that word incarnation, it simply means the enfleshment. Okay? It, it means God taking on flesh. God taking humanity to himself so that he is then both fully God and fully man. Uh, John has said that the Word is God. That here in verse 14, this Word that is God became flesh. He continued to be the Word. He continued to be God. But at a definite point in our history, He became man. He became flesh. And it is in this enfleshment, this incarnation, that God is unveiled to us. It is in taking our humanity that God reveals Himself and declares Himself to us. Now, what kind of unveiling is it? Or what kind of declaration is it? We'll look at several points here. The first is that this declaration of Himself is an exclusive declaration. An exclusive declaration. As He says in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He, He alone, has made Him known. This would apply to any person in any religion 
It would apply to anything that's ever occurred anywhere, but especially in this context, it applies to Moses. And Moses even saw God in a way. And if it applies to Moses, the greatest, the greater of any other and the greatest of all, then it would apply to anybody. So it says, he says to Moses when he uh, asked to see his glory, he said, no mortal man can see me and live. Moses' request to see God was de denied. He saw only his back, it says there. Uh, kind of like if you saw the last rays of the sun as the sun was already below the horizon, you could still see the rays of the sun. That, that's how much of God so to speak, he saw. Kind of, uh, F.F. Bruce calls it the afterglow of God's glory that he saw. <clears throat> so that's Moses. How would you judge others who claim to have seen God? No one. And think about this. No human being has ever seen God. And, and the contrast, no one has, has seen God, but this Son, this one who dwelled in his bosom, has given an authentic exposition of God to man. So think how different this man is than any other man who's lived in history. No man has seen God, but this man, because he is also God, dwelled with God, and now is showing forth God. He has broken the barrier that made it impossible for human beings to see God, because he has now revealed God to us. And it's underscored in verse 14 by his being the only son of the Father. Right? The glory as of the only son of the Father. This is the word monogenes. So mono, we know from monogamy. Monochromatic, one color. Monotone, some of us are monotone. Um, one. And then uh, genes is... The word we get, genus, you know, from species and family and order and phylum and kingdom and all that. And one of them is genus. It means a kind. One kind. It's, it's so, it, it's distinguishing him from any other. There is no other like him. There is only one. One and only from the Father. One and only of the Father. And it means one and only like the Father. One and only who can and does reveal the Father. So it's emphasized there in verse 14 as well. So what no man has ever seen, he comes and declares it. And so we must look to nowhere else, to any other person, no other religion. Christ is the revelation of God. And if we ignore Him, we ignore God. Period. And if we put Him aside as not the main thing, as just a good prophet, somebody that added to our knowledge of God. We are rejecting God altogether according to the Bible. Because He is the sole revelation, the unique revelation of God. Can you imagine you're on a date and you begin to share with your date uh, some stuff about your life? Yeah, well, when I was growing up, I had some hard things happen. And suddenly he goes, la 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 Probably the last date you would have with that person. But that silly looking thing is what we do to God when we reject His Word, when we reject this unique only revelation of God. 
So everything in Scripture leads up to Christ. Everything else in Scripture is an unfolding of Christ. It's all about Christ. Why? Because Christ is a revelation of God. And that's what the Bible is to reveal God to us. And so a question we have to ask ourselves, are you, am I, ignoring this exclusive unveiling of God in Christ by ignoring this Word? What place should this Word have in our lives if it is the sole unique revelation of the God who has made us? And that's hard at times. It's difficult to discipline ourselves. It's difficult to arrange our schedules. And many times we don't feel like it. And all of us have had tremendous failure in this area. Join the crowd, okay? It's hard. But the treasure that is available, the wealth of, of the unveiling of God Himself through the person of Jesus Christ. You, and... And this is what's so wonderful. Look at how God has strained, in a sense, to unveil Himself through the person of Jesus Christ. Do you think He doesn't want to then reveal that to you in His Word and, and make your heart feast upon that? Absolutely. God delights to make Himself known to you. God delights to make Himself known to you. Come and feast. Know Him. Uh, be a student, be uh, someone given to that word. It's, but it's not only an exclusive uh, declaration, right at the heart of it being exclusive is that it was an intimate revelation, right? The, the reason it's exclusive was he was so intimate with the Father. It says that, uh, verse 18, that he is at the Father's side, and literally, this is who is in the bosom of the father. This is spoken many times of a child in the bosom of its mother or often of a husband, who uh, the wife of his bosom, it says, or to the wife, the husband of your bosom. Beautiful way to describe that. And something for us all as husbands and wives to you know, achieve to be husbands and wives of each other's deepest affection. And regular hugging, of course, hopefully is the expression of that deep affection that we have. But this, this kind of language is used here. Uh, it's the language of when John 13, 23, which says John was on uh, Jesus' breast, leaning upon him, sitting right next to him, at, in his bosom. Um, it speaks of intimacy, it speaks of mutual love, it speaks of knowledge. No one has ever seen God, he says in John 6.46, except the one who is from God. He's always talking about that. No one has ever seen God except the one who is from God, i.e. in the bosom of the Father. That's where I've come from. I'm unveiling to you this intimacy. That's why he can say in John 14.9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father because of the unity of their fellowship. So it expresses the closeness of the Father and Son, the overtones of affection, the continual union that they have. And it's a continual. It's present tense. It doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't cease being intimate with His Father, you see. He, he continually is in the bosom of His Father. So He is able to say, I and the Father are one. Now, I and the Father 
are one. We continue to be in that intimacy. And the actual preposition used here is a preposition that means an orientation toward the Father. Even as the same thing in the beginning when it says the Word was with God. It's not just with Him kind of in a static side by side, but with Him toward Him. Toward Him. The intimacy and the, and the mutual turning toward each other of this. You know, if you've read some of Crabb's book, you may have, uh, Larry Crabb, you may have heard this illustration. He was on vacation down in South Florida. And he said, we pulled up uh, to park, uh, and it was a public parking area, but right there was an old folks home. And he said there were uh, probably half a dozen, eight, nine old folks out rocking in their chairs, okay, in the front. He said, the thing that amazed me, the thing that struck me was they were all rocking. Nobody was saying anything to anybody else. There was none of this, you know, conversation. Just, just this. And he said, an hour or two later when we got back, it was still this, still this. No communication, no communion. And he used it as an illustration to, of the church. How we can be unrelated to each other. We can be uninvolved in each other's lives. Not intimate with each other. And he, he uses the phrase constantly in this book, we need to turn our chairs toward each other. Right? Well, in eternity, God's chairs are turned toward each other. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we have here. Is in the bosom of the Father. Uh, they don't only see each other. They don't only know each other or speak with each other. They are in each other's embrace and have been forever. That's a beautiful picture. It, it, not that they're literal arms, you see, but in a way that we embrace each other. The, the very reason that embracing is so important to us, so nourishing, uh, we... We've read a guy who says, you need to sit and hold your wife for 30 minutes at a time. Just hold her for 30 minutes. See what happens. Five, six, seven. <gasps> no. <laughs> and, and you know how nourishing, it, uh, everywhere we talk about uh, all the literature, how nourishing touches, how nourishing hugs are, how beneficial to us. I, I believe that's because there's been, in whatever way God does, this eternal embrace in the Father and the Son. And so, there, this, this word brings out the greatest uh, possible intimacy. And so, what he beheld and heard before his incarnation in eternity, he hears and sees also continuously as a man, as he says in uh, John 8, 55, I know the Father. I know the Father. It's just beautiful to think when he walked the earth, he as God knew the Father and had this intimacy with him. And so, that's why, again, brothers and sisters, friends, it's exclusive because it's so intimate. Who else? <laughs> Who else? What else has dwelt in the bosom of the Father from all eternity? And then, and this is the beauty and glory of the Trinity, one person of the Trinity can come and take upon himself flesh and show forth 
the glory of that God to us. Well, it's not only exclusive, it's intimate, but it's detailed. And you'd think if it is intimate, that it would have to be detailed, right? If you really know someone, you can give detailed knowledge that nobody else would have. You've really lived with your husband or wife for a long time and say, well, tell me about you. Oh, I'll tell you about my husband. You know? But he comes to proclaim the endless glory and to show forth the in, uh, endless glory of God. And it's interesting how this last verse, verse 18 of this prologue, this beginning of John, is like this, the, the other part of the envelope of verse 1, because they both practically say the same thing. Uh, so that in uh, the first verse, it talks about being with God. In this verse, he is in the bosom of God. Here he's called God. There he's called God. And in both places, uh, there's this expression in verse 1. He's the Word. He's the self-expression of God. Here it says, He's made Him known. He's declared Him. So, verse 1 and verse 18 are the, you know, the two uh, envelope ends of this passage. And so, here, this Word is the word we use for exegesis, which that may not help you at all, okay? <laughs> but um, the, when, when we say someone is exegeting a passage of Scripture, we say he's explaining that Scripture. He's ex- exposing the meaning of that Scripture, interpreting that Scripture, and making it clear and understandable for you. And so that's the very word that's used here, uh, a verb form of that, that he has exegeted God. He exegetes God. And so, and, and he is a good exegete, right? He's making plain and clear who God is. He is the supreme exegete of God. And this word is also used in places where they're telling a story of something that happened. Like when the two guys uh, on the road to Emmaus have the encounter with the resurrected Jesus and they come back and they exegete the story. They tell the story or narrate the story. So in that sense, Jesus is the narration of God. He's telling the whole of the story of God, the whole person of God. He is revealing in this way. He does this exposition of the Father that is authoritative because He's in the bosom of the Father. He has the closest fellowship with the Father. He is the final revelation of God. It, the, this, the fact that he's the final revelation of God could not be more strongly set forth than this. That he was in the bosom of the Father and of all things. He is the one now who speaks. So all the many, even spectacular manifestations of God in the Old Testament before the coming of Christ, and there were those, were just small, partial, pencil sketches of this grand and beautiful Rembrandt that now covers the whole wall, so to speak. That's what Christ is now. All these partial black and white sketches of different parts trying to get a picture, but now the whole painting is there. All other manifestations uh, of His presence were hints. They were teasers, they were previews, they were movie trailers, but this is the one-of-a-kind grand opening itself. None but the one who is with God in the bosom of God could explain God. And it makes me think of 
uh, the comedian Stephen Wright, you know, who uh, weird, very weird guy, and he would say things like this: "I have a map of the world, life size." Okay, <laughs> had to think about it a little bit, but <laughs> where would you put that map? You know. Um, but here you can say, here is God, in a sense, life-size, completely unveiled, as He is, because the one who was with God now has come and declared and exegeted, explained, revealed God. <clears throat> now we get to what, we've seen how it's exclusive, it's, it's uh, intimate, it's detailed, it's a lowly declaration. It's a lowly declaration. He uses the word flesh, which is really crude, almost blunt, almost shocking way to express his becoming human. Flesh brings to mind weakness and frailty and mortality, like Psalm 78, where he says, verse 39, he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. That's just the mark of flesh. That's the way flesh is. It's weak and failing and dying. He became flesh. And then the association of flesh. Because all flesh is tainted with sin. All humanity is sinful. He didn't partake of that sin when He became flesh. But just think of the association. You became a part. You became human like every other human that's sinful. And so it says in Romans 8.3, He appeared in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not sinful Himself, but in the likeness of that which is sinful. His association was so close. Became one with our humanity. His baptism is a sign of His association with us. His death, of course, is the terrible reality of a true identification in which our punishment is put upon Him. So associated with us that it says in 2 Corinthians 5, He was made sin on our behalf. And it's not what it sounds like, like He was made sinful. But it's so graphic as to say, he was made sin on our behalf. He was so associated with sin. He so became the one responsible for sin in the eyes of God because He was standing in our place and so joined to us, all of our sin was joined to Him and He was punished as though He had sinned Himself. So that our flesh was punished in Him. Our humanity received the judgment of God in Christ. And that's why any human being can come to Christ and receive forgiveness because our humanity was judged. Our humanity bore punishment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as several have pointed out, though we... we and it is true... Veiled in God, uh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Okay? Veiled in flesh. But don't make that think that, don't, don't let it make you think that the glory of God was covered up by the flesh. Okay? That's emphatically not, not what's being said here. It's not that he became flesh and we couldn't see his glory because he was flesh. That's, not, that's, that's the opposite of what it's saying. 
It's not the means by which the glory of God is concealed in the man of Jesus, but the means by which it is revealed to the eyes of all. The flesh is the medium of the glory. It makes it visible to all people. And so, he, he's using the word which means the bodily eye. Seeing something. Since he came in this lowliness, the paradox is that the true glory is to be seen, not in the outward splendor, but in the lowliness with which He lived for men and suffered for them. There's a glory, an amazing uh, magnificence of God in His love that He would do this thing. That's what's bursting out in the flesh of Jesus. Who is this God? How could this God do such a thing? It's part, Morris writes, it's part of John's aim to show that Jesus showed forth His glory, not in spite of His earthly humiliations, but precisely by means of those humiliations. And supremely is this the case with the cross. To the outward eye, this is the greatest degradation, right? It's the death of a felon. But if we have eyes of faith... It is the supreme glory of God that He would hang on the cross for us. Can anything be more magnificent than that the God of the world would hang on a cross for sinful people? And so much of, of John is about this lifting up of Jesus. And Jesus, before His death, says, Now glorify me. Glorify your name. You see, the, the death itself is going to be an honor and a glory to God. But Dr. Blair says the suffering and struggle of Jesus are only alternative names for His glory. So the glory with the Father as the renewed and resurrected and glorified God-man is dependent, isn't it, on the kind of death that He dies. His glory is what? It's the glory of the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Right? That's His glory. What? You're, you're the Lamb. You died for sinful men. Oh, you're to be honored and glorified. So, you see, that's how His flesh is the revelation of His glory. His glory manifest that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. He glorifies God in His death by showing what kind of love the Father has for a lost world. That the Father, will, uh, through Jesus, will take on humanity and humble Himself and suffer and die for the sake of lost humanity. The Son reveals that love of the Father by taking on flesh he declares, this is what God does. This is what God is. He, in Him, is the full explanation of God. And so, the more shame there is, the more degradation, the more glory, the more suffering, the more He's despised and rejected, the more He is glorified because He shows the extent to which He will suffer for His people. <clears throat> So His glory is the glory of one who has suffered. His suffering and glorification are inseparable. He wouldn't have been glorified if He hadn't suffered because 
That is His glory that He would suffer. And it is amazing. In His exaltation at the right hand of God, He's exalted so high to indicate the, the, the greatness of what He accomplished in His death. That's why He's exalted to the heights of everything. Because He suffered so much. And, and this helps me when I think about why sin entered the world. And I've struggled with that a lot. Why sin was allowed to enter the world. But here's at least a help for me. And maybe it is for you. But the whole world created and allowed to sin. So that the maximum revelation of the glory of God. His magnificent character of love. Would be demonstrating in His own becoming flesh and suffering. Here... Here in Christ, the veil is pulled back as in no other place. This is painful exploratory surgery to discover the infinite health of God. We could say the infinite heart of God. The glory of His reaching out to man. The glory of His goodness in laying down His life. Well, that is why... We won't even touch on this, but our last point that we'll take up next week and include it with another passage but is that it's gracious and faithful. You know, this word, he says in verse 14, that we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word grace and truth, every commentator agrees that this is taking those two most common descriptions of God in the Old Testament. Where it says, His steadfast love and His faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Just said over and over in so many different contexts. And in those great declarations of God, uh, it says He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. And isn't it interesting that He says here, He's full of of that steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth. Full of it. And isn't this amazing that we saw His glory? And what is that glory? It's a glory that shows, oh God, even as it was declared to Moses and declared throughout the Psalms, declared in the prophets, it's revealed in a new, amazing way. You are full. Full of loving kindness and faithfulness. Seeing what was shown in Christ. That's what is revealed in Christ. A gracious constancy. An unwavering love. He will bind Himself to you. He will never fail you. He will be always present with you. It's like saying, we found out that God is full of true love. That's what we found out in Christ. He's full of His true love. This is His glory. And dear friend, you know, at, a time, at Christmas, at Christmas, it's a wonderful time to renew yourself. You know, there's so much in the world talking about this gift of, of Christ. And, and we know how shallow and sometimes absolutely blasphemous it is. But for us, it can be such a renewal of these glorious truths of the revelation of God in Christ. 
But if you don't trust Him, if you don't trust Him again, you're putting your hands over your ears and you're, you're rejecting and you're running away from what? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, I urge you, if you've never trusted in Christ, made Him the King of your life, the Lord of your life, what else are you going to trust but this one from the bosom of the Father would come to this point to die and put himself in your place for your sins? Will you say no to that? Really, will you say no to that? And not say, Lord Jesus, thank you. I praise you. I adore Lord, I trust you. I put my life in your hands. To forgive me of my sin. To change me. To take hold of me. To keep me and protect me. And to bring me into the new heavens and the new earth. Lord Jesus, I trust you. I hope nobody will go out of here. Does not trust in the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious, gracious King. King of all the world. Maker of heaven and earth. Redeemer. The one who died on the cross for your people. Oh, Lord God. What a God you are. What a God you revealed yourself to be. Bless us, O oh Lord. And we will have a capacity. Because we know, Lord, we are broken in so many ways. We are hardened in so many ways. We are hurt. We've sinned so terribly in so many ways. Each one of us is just a concoction of hurt and pain and sin. And only, Lord, as you break through by your powerful spirit, can we really see the sunlight. Can we really, in our blindness, be made to see the beauty of Jesus and, and be enabled to put ourselves in his hands. Otherwise, Lord, like many of us did for years, and we would even now if you hadn't done it. Otherwise, we'll just walk away. Oh, Lord, let no one walk away. Give everyone a joyful trust in this gracious, gracious God. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away